Hello, my name is Grant and I'm a pastor at New Song Church. And once again, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be able to join you. Um, I just want to say, you know, if you hear something in the next uh, 40 minutes or so that, that causes you to have some, some questions, uh, please, I'd like to say again, get in touch. Uh, this uh, process is meant to be a conversation and it's hard uh, with the building not being open and us not being uh, in, our, in each other's presence so often to do that. But we still have email and other ways to get in touch. So please connect. Uh, we're, we're doing this series called Words with Friends and that really is the point. It's about having conversations about the words that we use in life, but particularly the words that we use to talk about faith, to talk about God. Uh, last week we began this series uh, by thinking about a few things, that words are central to life, to human life. Communication is, is really a very unique thing uh, to the way the complexity of communication that human beings have. Uh, words are powerful. Uh, and words are generally used to make meaning out of our experiences and our knowledge and then communicate that meaning to other people. And we begin to form uh, the meaning of words as a kind of a shared agreement about what certain words mean. But unfortunately, words can become subject to all kinds of cultural uh, changes and distortions, whether that be in the culture at large or even the, the church culture, the Christian culture. Uh, and therefore, words can actually become serious hindrances to communication if we don't take time to evaluate them and reevaluate them and reflect on the words we use, and especially when it comes to words about our faith. Uh, who gets to define such important words? And are we willing to do the ongoing work of reflection and evaluation of the words that we use to talk about God to ensure that not only are we as clear as possible about what they mean, but that when we communicate them to other people, we're able to do so with clarity and with a sense of the atmosphere and really the person and character of the God that we're talking about. And also beyond that, do our actions demonstrate the truth of the words that we say we believe in? So today we're looking at the first in our series of words. Uh, so words with friends today is what do we mean when we say God? Very fundamental. So okay, here we go. Everything you could need to know about God in 40 minutes or less, right? Well, actually, you know, that's not possible. So, so what do we do? Well, really we're beginning a conversation uh, that should become a regular part of our lives uh, as a fellowship, as a community, for people who, for whom the spiritual life is of central importance to who we are and how we live in our world. It's centrally important to our origins and our identity and our purpose and our destiny. Uh, I, I remember in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, in chapter 11, uh, God said to the people about the concepts of who he was and his character and his will, said to the people, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. It's that sense of just a continued conversation that happens in every aspect of life when we're, when we're with friends, uh, over a meal, um, any kind of place. We're talking and developing more clearly maybe what we mean when we say the word, for example, God, that we're talking about today. You know, what do you think of when you hear the word God? How would you define it? I hope you've perhaps had a chance to take the sheets that we provided and, and maybe write down some of your thoughts about this already this week. Uh, when we say God, how do other people perceive and receive it? And when we go about our daily lives, what might our actions and words be teaching others about the God in whom we say we trust? 
you know, we, we, last week we talked a little bit about this. The meaning of words is usually formed by an accumulation of experiences and knowledge and perspectives. And much of the way we uh, discover meaning is kind of unconsciously accumulated. Uh, you know, where does the average person receive their understanding of who God is? You know, for people who grew up in the church, Sunday school was probably the very first time and the place where some of these ideas were formed. But I think now for most people, for the average person in America, uh, quite possibly it's not through a church anymore. Um, you know, we can go to the dictionary and look up a definition. That's often a quick go-to place to see what a word means. Uh, the definition in, in one dictionary that I consulted is the creator and ruler of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. And that's kind of a, a Christian kind of perspective. And then the other one was a superhuman being or spirit worshipped as having power over nature or human fortunes, a deity. Kind of generic multi-purpose, nothing specifically clear or defined about those definitions. Um, uh, you could do a Google search. That's commonly often where we go to now, even before a dictionary. And I did, I did a little search on just the word God. There were 2,640,000,000 results given in 0.56 seconds. And after reading all uh, 6.5 billion sites, I concluded that not everything you read on the internet is true. Um, all across the world, there are varieties of understandings of who God is. But if you kind of categorize those somewhat, there are about three main categories of belief in God. The first one, which applies to Judaism and Islam and, and Christianity, is monotheism, that there is one God. And there's pantheism, which says that all is God and God is in everything. And then there's polytheism, which says there are many gods and these are kind of form often the, the basis of religious beliefs about God. And there are some religious beliefs that don't really believe in any uh, kind of deity. Um, a Google image search, I, I took a look at that to see what would appear if I just searched for God and said, show me God, Google, O master of knowledge. Uh, and the number one image was, was a painting called God the Father by Sima di Conegliano, painted in 1515. Do you recognize this type of image? It's the classic understanding of God as a man. God as an old man, a bearded old man, a white bearded old man, a white bearded old man sitting in the clouds, remote and removed from the world, up there somewhere, looking down upon humanity with by turns generous favor or judgmental wrath. You know, this image has been the subject of a great deal of mockery. For example, Monty Python's God was always uh, quite similar looking uh, and actually quite perhaps deservably so. It's a, it's a very interesting and I think somewhat unhelpful idea of God. Uh, in popular culture, uh, movies regularly uh, explore the concept of God in, in sometimes surprising ways from, from Bruce Almighty uh, to God's Not Dead, one, two, and three. And I imagine four's in the pipeline sometime, but all kinds of movies have explored the concept of who is God and how might that relate to human beings? Where else do we encounter this word God and the concept of God? Well, most probably the most common expression that you will hear in everyday life is a form of exclamation, most recently shortened to OMG. And if you're a texter, then there's actually a, a, an image for OMG. And I think we know what that means, but it's an expression of, of wow, surprise, what's going on? Uh, every day we, we encounter uh, the word God. Uh, for example, in the pledge of, for the United States says one nation under God. 
Uh, actually, you may be surprised that this was only added to the Pledge in 1954. It's a fairly recent uh, addition to the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, and every day, uh, we use it on money. We bring out our money, and it says on the money, in God we trust, which may seem a little ironic since uh, Jesus said that pretty much there's two masters, you either serve God or money. So hopefully we take seriously that, that those words on the money and let, let God prevail in that aspect of life. Uh, you know, every day, be consciously or unconsciously, we're receiving information that affects our conception of who God is. What do you think about this? Do you recognize that in your life? Can you think of places in your life where you have accumulated information that has built your idea of who God is? Uh, there are many unquestioned ideas about God in our culture. There are actually many, many kinds of gods. Um, uh, as many as there are different kinds of people and perspectives and experiences in life. There's a really good book which I'd recommend by a man called J.B. Phillips. And it's called Your God is Too Small. Your God is too small. And he explores this concept of, of what he calls unreal gods. And I'm just going to explain a few. See if you resonate with any of these, that you've experienced this in your own belief about God or seen this in, in the world. Uh, the first one is the resident policeman. God as the resident policeman. He's, he's always uh, rebuking and, and, and giving you a ticket for the things you've done wrong. And J.B. Phillips actually talks about the conscience in this, in this concept, that our consciences cannot always be reliable guides to right and wrong. And he actually talks about as a child growing up, if you are told something like, you need to finish all the food on your plate and it's drummed into you every single mealtime, you're gonna be in big trouble. You can, you can, that carries on into your adult life. And, and in many ways, our conscience can start to condemn us. And it sometimes becomes wrapped up in God, the sense of morality that maybe is not accurate. It's not actually giving us a representation of God's thoughts. It's actually more coming from our own, our own conscience and our experiences. There's also the parental hangover, which is all about father issues. The parental hangover, what kind of father you have. We talk about God as father. And many people struggle with that notion because they cannot escape the concept of a father that was their earthly father and they find that very narrow and unhelpful and once again um, not a true conception of who God should be for them another one is the grand old man and that's really the, the old guy with the, the beard on the cloud and often Sunday school teachers will ask kids you know what is God like so well he's an old he's got a beard he's very old um, and, and so old, he's been around for a long time. Like there's some kind of time for God. He's very, very old and ancient. In fact, sometimes he's called the ancient of days, which maybe isn't very accurate for, to talk about an eternal God in those ways. Not old also is old fashioned. There's a sense that God is old fashioned, perhaps out of touch with the modern world or very fond of certain eras of human history. God is more fond of this thing because he's old. Like, um, especially when we become older, we, we often kind of do this too, that God is more fond of previous eras. The word man is in there. Um, just got to say, throughout this message, I am going to use the personal pronoun he for God, because, and I'm using it because scripture uses it. But we have to be careful that we don't take this too far and end up imagining God as a man, a man like a man, human man. Uh, scripture is clear, God is spirit. It also says God made human beings in his image, both male and female, both in his image. 
We got to think about that. God is described in ways that are clearly masculine and are clearly feminine. But these are metaphors to help us to understand something about the character of God and his orientation towards his creation. Uh, these, these, these can be unhelpful if we start to think of God in, in a masculine sense as we imagine a man on earth. The next one is meek and mild. God is meek and mild, very permissive and always saying it's no problem, it's all good. He's just very chill, he's very meek. Uh, the next one is, is the opposite of that, absolute perfection. If, if my image of God is just completely absolute perfection, then it's gonna cause me to think I must be perfect all the time. I'm always failing to measure up to this perfect God. And the next one that Philip says is heavenly rest, a God of heavenly rest that when the weary days are over, I'm just gonna enter into this rest. That's my sole conception of God as the one that's gonna give me a nap one day, some kind of rest. Then there's God in a box. And this is so common when religious institutions take God and they seek to control, manage him uh, and end up using this conception of God to keep people in or to keep people out. Uh, and then the, the next one is managing director. The managing director, God is so busy taking care of all the important things, making sure that the celestial planets all run on time. And so no, no time for the details or the small uh, cares of life for individuals. You know, many of these uh, ideas are, are really God made in human image. It's like we take some aspect of what we know about a person or a person's people and we imprint them upon God uh, and, and therefore we see him somehow. And this is a very popular thing in ancient religions, the Romans and the Greeks. Most of their gods were very much like human beings. Um, and that's really what the, the Christian, the Jewish God, the Judeo-Christian God breaks out of uh, and confounds that. Uh, one of the last things that... Um, Philip says about uh, an unreal God is the second-hand God. And I think this is very common. Like it's, ne it's not a God from personal experience. It's just like, well, I heard that God is. This is on the internet all over the place. Rather than present my own perspective, I will find someone whom I admire or seems to make sense, and I will say, well, that, I agree with him about God. So these are just a few examples of unreal gods in Philip's book. And I would thoroughly recommend that you read it if you're interested in, in this concept. What do you think about this? Do any of these ideas about God as being the policeman, the parental hangover, the grand old man, meek and mild, perfection, heavenly rest, God in a box, managing director, do any of these ideas resonate somehow or intersect with your concept of God? You know, many people say that they don't believe in God at all. I don't believe in God. But perhaps the idea of God that they have isn't really worth believing in at all anyway. Uh, there's a surprising dialogue that has been shared a few times um, if, with someone who doesn't believe in God and it goes something like this. Person says, I don't believe in God. And then you say, describe to me the God in whom you don't believe. And so the person describes their idea of God is. And then you say, I don't believe in that God either. Many, many ideas of God are really not worth believing in at all. Looking around at culture to try and get an, an indication of where a culture has, an, where its understanding of God is, um, I have found that one fairly reliable source of, of just taking the pulse on a culture's sense of, of these things is actually the world of popular music. Artists express their longing, I think, for a connection with the spiritual. 
And the subject of God just kind of creeps into all kinds of artistic expressions. And every decade, there have been songwriters who would express their own generation's longings for God. They kind of speak for their generation. They, they're part of that generation. And, and artistically, they speak about that generation and how they perceive God. So this week, I decided to read through the lyrics to the top 10 Billboard hits right now in America. And I was looking for evidence of God longings in popular music. Um, and it was a, kind of a hard a hard thing to do, actually. It was quite difficult. Actually, Justin Bieber's song, Intentions, was really the one inclusion in the top 10 that seems even close to what I would seem to be a healthy perspective on human relationships and life and flourishing. So I was saying kudos to Justin Bieber. I'm not even going to attempt to sing it, but my favorite line was, it's a blessing because we both get it. You the best thing and I don't need a witness. I'm a find me a ring and pray it's perfect fitted. Like blessings in there, praise in there. Justin Bieber is awesome. I hope we can all agree with that. But actually the whole process kind of broke my heart because, because it was hard to read. If this, was the, this is the culture it was hard to read. At first, I realized I am so, I've been so out of touch with, with popular culture. I really dip into that world. But secondly, I recognize that these lyrics are kind of profoundly religious in a certain sense, but they are religious in the sense of misdirected worship. Like God was seemingly absent from the lyrics. There was no way you could kind of, by reading them, get a clear sense of, of the place of God in the lives of the people who wrote these songs. But as I read more, I began to, read, read, to recognize a pattern. The lyrics were full of gods, but gods with a small g. Idols. Those things that, that attract us to offer our lives and our attention and our worship in some ways that are not the living God. Of sexual pleasure, of money, of power, self-worship, materialism. You know, actually I watched uh, one of the artists explaining the meaning of his song and I just kind of felt a burden for him. He's a really young man um, who has a lot of money. I just felt this heaviness for him and a sense to pray for him and to hope that someone in his life can like maybe show him uh, a glimpse of God. That's what the church is for. To, so, so whose fault is I think the church has really, has, has issues, you know. I think we've somewhat abandoned or at best drifted away from a robust, balanced, energizing and practical conception of who God is and how we should, should relate to him. And perhaps we've been guilty of creating all kinds of what J.B. Phillips calls unreal gods and then wonder why no one wants to join us in worshiping them or worshiping him. This, this is always the dilemma for human beings to, that we are always sort of constructing from our brokenness an image of God that, that falls so far short of, of who he is. J.B. Phillips in his book said this, he said, many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or as the old-fashioned would say, godless, but because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect and consequently their willing cooperation. 
You know, I can still remember the process by which I came to find that the God about whom I had learned as a child was no longer sufficient for my adult life with all the challenges and new understandings, questions and realizations that I was experiencing. And I think my doubts were often dismissed and doubt in general was considered to be a serious problem and perhaps even evidence of some kind of satanic influence. What kind of God are we presenting to the world? And are we willing to do the hard work to to let the truth of that be spread uh, through us? And is there a way forward? Is there a way forward for us? When we think about the word God and the way we put that word out into the world, what is it we're meaning? What What are people receiving from our conception? Well, it really has to start with us. We talk a lot about the fact that we need to be transformed and this is an area where we fundamentally need to be changed. The first thing that needs to happen is this. We need to become a people who are completely awestruck by God. A people who are completely and radically awestruck by God. It would be a great improvement to our Christian discourse if the word God could be the one word in our vocabulary for which we fail to find any words to possibly describe what we mean. Sure, we have plenty of words that we seek to describe, use to seek to describe some aspect of God and they could be helpful. We say God is sovereign, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, but none of them are the thing itself. And none of them can come close, even close to describing the reality of who God is. He is always greater in every way. And in fact, that by thinking that we've described God, we're in danger of assuming that we know who he is and then fitting him into our tidy little boxes. Like, okay, so after surveying all the evidence, I've given that aspect of God a technical name, so we're all good there. Now we can move on to the next mystery to be solved. There's a thing called systematic theology, and I also have problems with this, because it occurs in a 10-volume set of books, okay? God has been wrapped in the binding of a book. God cannot be systematized. God cannot be systematized. As a very smart professor at Wheaton College is known to say, we humans, we are pea brains, think that we can systematize, categorize, quantify God. Listen to what the God proclaimed about himself through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your, sorry, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The writer of Ecclesiastes writes, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. From beginning to end, no one can fathom. Then again in Ecclesiastes, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. I have seen a lot of people being really quick to use passages of scripture 
perhaps to bash their opponents, especially Old Testament passages, pulled out of context. Friends, we should be very cautious about doing that and imagining that we can know what God is doing right now. So what should we do? Well, we need to let the scriptures teach us the language of God and the language about God and how to speak about God, this great God. G.K. Chesterton, an Englishman, wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And I've quoted briefly this many times because I, I think it's really helpful. Uh, he writes this, the poet, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician, so the one who will logically want to quantify everything, who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that splits open. The poet just simply asks to get his head into heaven. The other person seeks to get all the heavens into his head and his head splits. The poet, as much as one third of the entire Old Testament is poetry. And when we try to remove the poetic, descriptive, mysterious language about God, we risk making God an object in a test tube to be scrutinized and quantified and categorized rather than an everlasting, brilliant, endlessly active, unpredictable, fierce, furious, eternal spirit into whose life we are called to be caught up. Endlessly creative and communicative beyond any of our imaginations, unsurpassable, impossible to pin down, categorize or describe. With all the greatest minds on the planet, we can't even begin to describe the immensity of the cosmos with more than tiny human squeaks that only touch the very edges of what can be known. Yet we have the audacity to think that we can chart God. Scripture calls us to wonder, to awe, to reverence, and the deepest of humility when it comes to God. We need to let ourselves be carried away by the lofty language of God, of the hungry, God-hungry poets of Israel. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song because there's always something new to sing about this God who is endless. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. We're called to wonder. And there are so many poetic expressions that the people of God have turned to, to express the inexpressible and to find themselves just in this moment of awe and humility and wonder. The Apostle Paul was in Athens one day in his time of missionary journeys and he quotes to the people there pagan poetry not Jewish words, but actually the secular understanding and philosophy of the day because he felt probably that it somehow expressed the inexpressible about God. He said to these people, for in him, God, we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said. What a mysterious thing for Paul, the ultimate logician and argumentative logical person, right, to say for in him we live and move and have our being. There are so many beautiful words that have been written by all kinds of people that lead us into the mystery and the awe of who God is. Melody, a few weeks ago, quoted uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a poet. And she wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. So first, we need to become more comfortable with mystery, with poetry, with wonder, with awe, with not knowing. Certainty, absolute certainty cannot exist with the living God of all creation. Humility is the only proper response and state of human beings. But secondly, we must seek to know God by the primary means by which he has actually made himself known to us. For human beings, all human beings, God is always best spelled J-E-S-U-S. This is where the rubber meets the road. Or better yet, this is where the sandaled foot meets the dust of first century Palestine. John, one of the disciples said about Jesus, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. John also said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he made his dwelling with us. We have seen with our eyes. Jesus said to his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus answered his disciples to one of their questions about what is the way that we need to go? And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, people wonder somehow 
how important it is the concept that Jesus is God is of supreme importance for us because if we did not know Jesus or have Jesus, we could not know God. Jesus showed God to us. In fact, for human beings, Jesus is the God whom we have been given to know, to understand, to worship and obey. Uh, A preacher by the name of William Willimon said this, he wrote this, Christ in word and deed is God's determination to be revealed. Christ is revealed, revealer and revelation of the one who is extravagantly known and unreservedly self-giving. There is no unknown God hiding behind Jesus. There is no unknown God hiding behind Jesus. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. No God unlinked to this Jew from Nazareth who lived briefly, died violently and rose unexpectedly. In him, Paul writes in Colossians, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. J.B. Phillips points in his book to God, sorry, to Jesus as being the focused God whom we can know rather than the unfocused God who we struggle to make understandable and knowable and fit into our little boxes. He has done it. He has done it. We don't need to try. We look to Jesus. Okay, I'm going to share an illustration that I find really helpful. It's not original to me, but imagine, and this is just an illustration, so if it doesn't work for you, then we'll try and find a better one, but I I think it's quite helpful. Imagine I was a scientist and I decided one day I was going to create some kind of colony of bacteria in a petri dish in my laboratory, right? And so they begin to live and they're doing their simple things that they do. And compared to me, there's not much complexity there because I'm a scientist and I'm, I'm a very intelligent person with a whole world around me and, and all of my will. And so they have their lives. But I try to connect with them. Throughout the day, I try to connect with them to let them know of my presence and even to help them. And what happens, all I succeed in doing, if they're conscious at all, is to appear threatening, terrifying, inscrutable, unknowing, this presence that they end up coming to fear. Perhaps they'll end up sacrificing to me in the hopes that I will be beneficial to them. They can't know me, but if I become one of them, if I become one of them and I make my home with them, and I live the lives that they are living amongst them. But yet as I do so, I remain in my character the same, exactly the same, but in the form of, the, of these tiny creatures, then they might then understand me. We cannot understand God, but Jesus translates God for us. Therefore, if we want to understand and know God, we must go to Jesus first and always. That is the one distinction, not only that makes us Christians, but it is, I believe, the one distinction that can offer hope to the world. We're looking for God. And God says, I have shown myself to you. And God had always promised to come and be with us. He had always promised to make himself known to the people, to the world. Um, In Isaiah 42, this is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens who stretches them out. This is God who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. 
Who's he talking about? He says, I will take hold of your hand and I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. And what does Jesus do? He first, he gets in a synagogue right at the beginning of his ministry and he quotes these passages. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I will open the eyes that are blind. I will free the captives from prison and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. God has come for his people. And Jesus came and showed us what God was like. So when we see this, mysterious, hard to understand God of the Old Testament. Uh, And we see this justice and compassion is visible in there somewhere and it's confusing and it's complicated. Then we see Jesus walking in the streets and he brings into sharp focus what God is like in these areas, spending time with those who least deserve grace and mercy. On the Sermon on the Mount, one of the primary parts of the gospel to understand this concept, Jesus said this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All that was said, all that was understand, all that was difficult to understand. Jesus now says, I am here. Look at me and you will see what God is like. So therefore he kind of, he restructures some of these Old Testament commands. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There are many expressions of hatred for enemy in the Old Testament. And, but Jesus said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. We want to know what God is like. We look to Jesus. We cannot go around Jesus to the Old Testament or to God and think that we can use it to understand exactly what God wants or thinks or is doing in the world. We, we, we cannot do that. How dare we try to do so? It makes us just like those who rejected Jesus in his own day. He came and said, the father is here. And they said, no, we, we prefer the other father, the other father that gives us permission somehow, we think, to condemn our enemies and keep people out. And Jesus says, that's not the father. I'm showing you God. And they rejected him. And wow, you know, this God who's so high and mighty and in Jesus, as God, he made himself vulnerable to every human hurt and painful emotion. To think God hurts, God is weak, God is tempted, yet does not give in to sin. And then the cross, which is the greatest communication that God has ever made and tells us everything about his attitude attitude towards us. Dying, loving, forgiving, saving, empathizing, faithfully serving. We want to know who God is. We go to Jesus. He is the means by which we have been given to understand the heart of God, the intention of God, the will of God, the purposes. So we need, we need to do this. We must give space and attention to both what is called transcendence and what is called imminence. Let me explain those terms. Transcendence is the almighty God who is above all things, who is unknowable, 
who is unreachable, uh, who is so high and exalted and so holy that we couldn't ever hope to connect or to know him or to connect, to reach him. And that imminence is the fact that this God has stepped right down into the dust of our lives and the sweat and the pain and the sorrow and just the everyday momentary uh, human um, experiences of life. And this is the beauty. It's what makes the gospel so rich and so beautiful that an utterly other God above all things, the creator of all that is so completely beyond us creatures and yet becomes one with us in all of human life. And then in love, the love of the father, the love of the creator, the love of the one who always longs to restore this relationship that's been broken. He offers us his presence forever by means of his complete humility and sacrifice. That is the good news. That is the good news. So what are we to do in response to this? Well, the world needs to know God. The world needs to know God and we are the means we are told by which they are to do so. But if the world is to know God, we must first get to know God ourselves. The world is to know God. We must first get to know God ourselves. A book I've been reading this week. You know, sometimes a paragraph just sticks out to you in the midst of doing this sermon. I was reading this book and I was like, yeah, this is it. This is it. He says that to do this, he says, to live a life for God involves loving Jesus and desiring his presence above all things. And then pouring out love to the least and last, the lost and lonely speaking for the voiceless, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, declaring good news and being good news to the world around, all from the overflow of time in his presence. In his presence. That's our primary responsibility every day is to spend time in the presence of God with this transcendence, this awe of God. And then this utterly intimate, close, loving presence of Christ in whom we are forgiven and redeemed and restored. There is no condemnation anymore. We've been given life. So we can confidently turn to our neighbors and offer what we have, our time, our finances, our service, our joy, our testimony. And this really is what New Song Church is all about. This is our purpose to be people like this, to be God-hungry seekers after the living God by means of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. Imagine what our community would be like if every person in every church took seriously the hard work of discipleship, seeking God every day with seriousness and passion, gathering to pray and to talk about our faith and expectantly watching for opportunities to bless and serve and share and love on our neighbors. Then they might see and experience God through Christ in us, the hope of glory. I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to be it. You know, this is just the start of a conversation. 
It's called Words with Friends. I hope that this has stirred up some thoughts about you. Maybe it has changed your mind about some things. I hope it's inspired you to realize that there's nothing greater in this world than a connection with God through Jesus Christ. And if this is not something you are aware of that you've been engaging in, I just encourage you, if you're sick and tired of of the treadmill, (laughs) the rat race, to just simply say, Jesus Christ, I see in you something compelling and I want to give you my life. I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want you to know me and give your life over. Just give it over. It was never yours to begin with and it will never truly be yours. It will always be God's. And he calls you to surrender, to lay down all of your burdens and griefs and sorrow and reservations and fears and simply come Simply come. As I said, this is a conversation. I would encourage you to connect um, with uh, those of whom with your with today. Think about these things together. Converse about them. And also at twelve o'clock, uh, if you're watching this on Sunday morning, at twelve o'clock there's an opportunity to join a Zoom meeting, uh, which we're calling Words with Friends, which will simply be a chance to, to check in on how each other are doing. We're going to pair people up uh, in in groups. Um, and then talk about some of these questions because the best thing we can do then is to hear other people's perspectives and, and by means of that we can grow uh, and maybe have some of our ideas um, uh, changed um, in healthy ways. So we're going to close now with a, a very brief prayer uh, that I hope will help us to see something of this God who calls us into relationship with himself. Let's pray. O God Almighty, you are above our understanding. God Almighty, we cannot know you unless you make yourself known to us. God, forgive us the ways in which we try so hard to fit you into our limited understanding or try to keep you for ourselves or use you and your word to lash out at other people. You are righteous when you judge us for such things. Break our hearts and humble us before you. Jesus, our Lord and God, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells in human form, show us what it means to follow you wholeheartedly with trust and confidence in your life, death, resurrection, and soon return. Holy Spirit, fill us with your presence and lead us into what we are yet to become according to your sovereign wisdom and will. Draw us with bonds of love into daily communion with you, O Lord, and grow in us a deepening hunger for your presence. Amen.